I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Hi, I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Good morning. This class was sponsored by Harold and Carol Goldberg in honor of the yurt site of Carol's father, Monty Landsberg, Mordechai ben Nachum, his neshama should have an aliyah. Amen. And again, refuah shalema to everyone who needs. Our prayers should be answered. The Toba. I wanted to just, I realized last week, I didn't really tell you the halachos of when you're standing and davening Shona Esrei, what do you do if somebody knocks on the door? What do you do if you're in a situation where you have to move, where you have to walk? Let's say you're a mother and you've got a toddler and you're trying to daven and you see the toddler's getting into some danger. You know, obviously, uh, as it says about the, the mitzvot, we're supposed to chai bahem. We're supposed to live by them. And Rashi says, not die by them. Uh, that's the extreme example. But the idea is, is that, you know, we live in the real world. So, of course, if there's a reason to move, even during Shemona Esrei, halachically, you're allowed to move. I'll give you a few uh, examples. So if someone knocks at the door, you can open it. If it's bothering you, for example, while you're davening, it's taking away your attention from davening. You can take the phone off the hook. You could walk. Oh, the phone's ringing right now. You could walk to take the phone off the hook if if you were in the middle of uh, Shemona Esrei and it's bothering your kavana. Okay. The idea is, is that you can move, but you cannot talk. So, you know, let's say your cleaning lady arrives when you're in the middle of Shemona Esrei and you need to go answer the door because it's 30 below zero outside immediately right so you can walk over to the door you can open it and just kind of nod to her come on in and then go back to your spot and continue davening of course if there's a bad smell in the room maybe you have little kids around you can move away from there okay because you're not supposed to daven in a place where there is not a good smell if you have to go to the bathroom and you didn't go before davening or for whatever reason you have an upset stomach, you can stop in the middle of the Shemona Esrei. You must stop halachically and use the washroom and then come back to your place in the tefillah, okay? Or let's say uh, you're davening and you're in the middle of Shemona Esrei and you weren't sure, you forgot to say ya Yavo. you forgot to add something that you were supposed to add you can walk over to the bookshelf or whatever you need to go and get the safer that will tell you uh, or stop your t- stop your feel in order to look up what it is that you need to do. Okay, my son even told me he had to go ask a Shaila in the middle of Shimona Esrei having to do with the Shimona Esrei or something. And he walked over to a rub in his shul to ask him the question. And so perhaps even talking, if it's in reference to the tefillah itself, in order for you to be able to daven it properly, there might be extreme situations where you're allowed to talk. But generally, moving out of these uh, situations, you're allowed to do that, but trying not to talk. 
Okay, um, so today we're going to start on the 10th bracha in terms of the brachas of Shemona Esrei. It's number 10 for a reason. It follows the bracha on, um, on wealth. On, uh, yes, on wealth. And it's the bracha called uh, Kibbutz Galio. It's about the ingathering of the exiles. It's the prayer that where we ask Hashem to bring us back to Eretz Yisrael as a people, as a nation, to begin the uh, process of bringing the Jewish people back to our homeland and thereby bring, beginning the process of the days of Mashiach, when the whole world will know of Hashem, when the Jewish people will be back in their land uh, with their temple, of course. We're going to talk about that in the future brachas coming up. And let's learn a little bit about this Bracha. So first of all, which bracha is that for? What is so it? It's, it's, it's the tenth, the tenth blessing. It's Tikab Shofar Gadol Lachemutenu. It comes right after the bracha. We just talked about the bracha of Parnassa, and we basically said that Parnassa comes through Israel. That the land of Israel is like the heart of the world, and all of the arteries from the entire world are connected to the heart of the world, and therefore even bracha, physical, material, prosperity, bounty, it flows from, we said last week, from the Garden of Eden, right? We said Peneha Adama, in the last bracha, refers to the Garden of Eden, which is the nucleus of the world. And so that all bracha flows anyway from Eretz Yisrael. So the idea is, is now that we've made this bracha on, on prosperity, and the world is bountiful, the material world is bountiful, now we can begin the process of returning to our land spiritually as a people. The land is ready for us. The land is prospering. I once heard a beautiful idea from Rav Cook, where he said that, you know, there were different types of Jewish Jews who built the land of Israel beginning in 1948. You know, there were the, the, the Jews who we call Hilonim, right? The Jews who were not religious at all, many of whom threw religion away, even in Europe. People were already losing their grip on being Orthodox Jews. And, you know, a lot of these people, obviously, together with the religious, came from those war-torn Holocaust countries with merely the shirt on their backs, of course, and they started to rebuild the land of Israel. And Rav Cook says that those who were, you know, not religious, that the credit goes to them because they built the body of Israel. Those were the people who, you know, started fighting with makeshift. I mean, everybody was fighting in the early days, but they were the ones who were draining the swamps and dying of malaria, and building the kibbutzim, and making the land grow again. And they were building the body of Israel. Meanwhile, you know, he says the yeshiva bachrim who came, they weren't even built to build things. You know, they were skinny, they were sitting in front of a gemara all day long, but they were building the soul. And you need both the body and the soul. And many people say today, the body of Israel has been built, right? Startup nation, everybody in the world, including the Chinese, are coming to Israel to learn from us. We are the ones who teach irrigation and how to bring water into places that are 
you know, bereft of water, that are deserts, that are arid. And we are, we've become, you know, the pioneers of so many innovations. So the idea is, is that the body of Israel has been built. But now we're at the final stage, which is now we have to put the neshama back into the body. And one by one, Hashem is bringing the Jewish people home. And one by one, Hashem is waking up the Jewish people who live in Eretz Yisrael, who very often are furthest from the understanding of the mission of the Jewish people on a soul level, on a neshama level. And so it's only when the neshama returns into the body that we will be have shleimut, that we will be able to be the light onto the nations, that we will be able to bring prosperity and peace and wisdom and kindness and goodness and justice into the world from our home spreading out to the rest of the world. And that's the process that we're in right now. Just a personal story. When I was a kid, my parents were very Zionistic. My father was the president of the Zionist Organization of Canada. Before him, my uncle, many of you knew him, Rabbi Monson, was the president of the Zionist Organization. So Zionism was really our religion. You know, I mean, as much as I knew about um, observance, it was minimal in terms of it not really um, making sense to me. We did some things, we didn't do other things, but when it came to Zionism and the love of Israel, this was deeply rooted in my family. As a kid, I met Golda Meir. I have albums of my parents with Rabin, with Perez, with Begin, with, you know, my father used to get them to come and visit us and say Catherine's because he'd say, I'll take you to, I'll take you to Niagara Falls. Come, come, come. So we used to have a lot of Israelis around our Shabbos table. And um, and every summer I went to Zionist camp. And, you know, I only laugh in retrospect about those camps because, you know, we were out in Gravenhurst or, or uh, Sudbury. And we literally had to wash the floors with sponges and smart toots. And I didn't, you know, we had to wash the floor with the stick, you know, and, and, and I realized, like, they were preparing us for, you know, Chalutzik Aliyah. We were supposed to be making Aliyah to Kibbutz. And so they figured if we know how to wash the floor in Israel, it, it's, it, it's a done deal. We'll, we'll never come back because, you know, that's what, makes, that's what makes people come back. They see they have to wash the floor like that, and that's it. They're going back to America. But, you know, if they could, if they could uh, teach us this young, then, you know, our Aliyah would be much, much smoother. We also had to guard the camp. We'd have to get up in the middle of the night from three to five in the morning. You could have a shift like that. You were washing the uh, dining room floor with the smart tooth to the sponja, but you were also looking out for invading Sudbarians. Okay? So they were simulating, you know, Gadna. We were in the army. And of course, we had these really tough Israeli shlichim. Marlene's laughing because she went to these camps. We had these really tough Israeli shlichim who would come and they'd make us go into the woods and make it get a stick and we'd have to peel the stick. It's called kapak. And, and they'd come and, and whack us with their stick and we'd have to like, you know, quickly move our stick around. And they used to say about the Canadian boys, they're so soft, they're such wimps, they're such babies. And then they'd make obstacle courses that we'd have to jump off of Migdalim and we'd have to climb over all kinds of stuff. And I realized this whole thing was all about making Aliyah. 
So I guess I really bought it hook, line and sinker. And I was the only kid in the family that would come home after every summer and say, so when are we moving? When are we going? I'm ready. I know how to wash the floor, you know? And my parents would always say, well, my father would always say, well, we're, we're not going. And I'd say, what do you mean we're not going? And he'd say, well, you know, some people have to stay back here and send money. I'd say, okay. So he'd say, so, you know, that's what we're going to be doing. We're helping people send money. I'd say, well, you know what? Let other people do that and let's go. Anyway, that was a constant uh, argument with me and my father. But the idea is, is this is what this bracha is about. That in order to be completely bishlemut, the idea is that a Jew out of Israel is like a fish out of water. And for us to really reach the pinnacle, the cherry on the ice cream, right? The icing on the cake is really for a Jew to be able to live in the land of Israel and to be able to perform all of those mitzvot which are teluyot va'aretz, right? Which you can only do in the land of Israel. Now we know there's a machloket. For example, I think it's the Rambam says that it's not a mitzvah to live in Israel. It's not one of the 613 mitzvot. Okay, so there've always been machloket through the years as to whether or not living in Israel constitutes a mitzvah. Because we know the Jews survived without Israel. We survived for 2000 years. And as my husband liked to say, you know, people whose whole Yiddishkeit is, is Zionism, is the love of the land of Israel, what they're missing is the idea that, guess what? There are no guarantees. I mean, God forbid, and we know we're at the end of the story now, but God forbid we could lo lose Israel at any time. And we did throughout our history. But the Jewish people continue because of Torah. And that's what keeps us alive as a people. Without a land, without an army, living in countries where they want to get rid of us, we survive because of Torah. And to have the land of Israel without Torah makes no sense at all. And that's why we know that we're still in the middle of the story when it comes to the land of Israel today. It's not run by people who appreciate the neshama, of the land necessarily. And so we're still awaiting the day when the land of Israel will be ruled by the Torah of the Jewish people. And then of course, then we will have Orla Goyim. The nations of the world will flock to us. They'll look to us and say, what a wise and discerning people. We understand that these people have survived all of history in order to teach us about the one God in order to teach us about justice and sedek and kindness and, and, and righteousness and love of the uh, oppressed or the underprivileged, the weaker in society, et cetera, and all of the other incredible values that the Jewish people have been spreading to the world since our inception. And of course, one of the ideas, as much as it was a punishment that we were spread to the four corners of the earth, and we were literally spewed out of the land, which abhorred, which the land is like it's alive. It abhors people who live on it and do not live by the Torah. As it says in the Navi over and over again, the land itself will spit you out. But the positive is that the Jews were sent to the four corners of the earth in order to live Torah lives and be 
and, 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 and influence the nations among whom they lived. And certainly we spread our teachings in that way as well. Okay, so this is blessing number 10. It's the bridge. It's called the bridge blessing because before this blessing, we were dovening about our own needs. Of course, we always doven in the plural because we don't want God to just look at me personally. We're always part of the tzibur, right? We said tzibur stands for tzaddikim, benonim, and rishaim, tzibur, okay? We want God to look at us together with all of the Jews, so we doven in the plural. But those brachas before were about our individual needs. We want wealth. We want health. We want wealth. We want to have what we need in order to be able to to flourish spiritually and not have to worry about our, our physical needs so we can learn Torah with serenity and tranquility. And now we're going to more national needs, spiritual slash national needs. As we said, this bracha is the 10th bracha. It comes after the ninth bracha of Parnassa because we're, because there we ask for blessing and and to bless the bounty of Eretz Yisrael specifically, because the idea is, is if that is, if Israel is blessed with prosperity, from there it it spreads to the entire world, and therefore the whole world will be blessed. Now, abundance in Israel has always been connected to the return of the Jewish people to their land. It was it's a sign of the Geula that we are living in right now when Israel will produce large and abundant fruit, because we know throughout history, whenever other peoples lived in the land of Israel, they could not get anything to grow there. I remember when we used to live there, you know, it was like a big thing, or when I was in seminary there, if you went to the fruit store and you found an incredibly large orange or an incredibly large apple, you know, we'd always say to each other, Mashiach's coming. Because, you know, especially at the beginning of the state, everything was tiny. You know, they were just beginning to make things grow. And of course, as time went on, they were getting better and better at it. And if you saw something particularly large, you would say, oh, Mashiach is coming. I just want to read you something in regards to this. The idea that when the Jewish people live on the land, only, only then does the land begin to flourish. Okay, so this is from Yechezkel. It says, thus said the Lord God, you, O mountains of Israel, shall yield your produce and bear your fruit for my people Israel, for their return is near, for I will care for you, I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. I will settle a large population on you, the whole house of Israel. The town shall be resettled and the ruined sites rebuilt. I will multiply men and beasts upon you. They shall increase and be fertile. And I will resettle you as you were formerly and make you more prosperous than you were at first. And you shall know that I'm the Lord. I will lead my people Israel to you and they shall possess you. You shall be their heritage and you shall not again cause them to be bereaved. And then it says here, the book of Ezekiel contains a dual prophecy to the people of Israel. In its first part, God tells the Jewish people that the land assigned to them will remain desolate as long as it is occupied by strangers and they remain in exile. 
And so it was a bleak, barren, undeveloped land for over 2,000 years. In the second half of the prophecy, God describes the signs of the incipient redemption, how the land would appear just before the Jewish people would return forever. This part of the promise, too, began to come true during the decades preceding the establishment of the Jewish state in Eretz Yisrael before 1948. This is the state of Israel referred to in a Jewish prayer as the first flowering of our redemption. From the deep sleep of oblivion in the absence of its sons and daughters, the land finally awakened. Okay, so the land began to awake as we began to come back to the land of Israel even before 1948. And this has been well documented that when the Jewish people were not on the land, it was impossible for anything to grow there. Just an interesting uh, fact about my family, also this idea of the love of, of Israel. My father used to say that his grandfather was one of the people who attended the conference in Basel, Switzerland with Theodor Herzl. He was a religious Jew, but he was part of a group called the Chovavet Zion, the Lovers of Zion, who believed in trying to get to the land of Israel from Europe, um, even without a pogrom or a Holocaust, before the Holocaust. And he attended that meeting of Herzl. I don't know whether it was the one where he said, we'll take Uganda. And of course, the Chovavet Zion probably convinced him, we don't want Uganda. We want we want the real thing. We want the land of Israel. Okay, so why is this bracha number 10? Number 10 is always a symbol of completion. That God created the world with 10 utterances, right? We have 10 commandments. There were 10 plagues. 10 is a big number in Judaism. 10 here represents, it's a symbol of sanctity and unity. We know that you need 10 men in order to be able to, so to speak, have the Shekhinah come down on this group of men, it's much more powerful than when you pray with less than 10, because 10 is the idea of unity and wholeness and, and, and sanctity. The Rambam, Maimonides says that the holiness of Eretz Yisrael surpasses that of all other places in the world, and that within Eretz Yisrael, there are 10 different levels of sanctity. So, of course, you know, when we talk about Aliyah, we're not simply talking about Aliyah in a physical way. When you go to Eretz Yisrael, you are having an Aliyah, Aliyah of your Neshama. Your Neshama is being elevated to a place that it, it itself is elevated. It exists on a different plane of sanctity. God's presence is more concentrated there. As it says in the Talmud, the eyes of God are always on the land of Israel in a concentrated way. Of course, he's watching the entire world, but it's like, you know, your firstborn child. You're just watching him a little bit more closely than the ones that follow, a little more protective, a little more nervous about the care of that child. Now, the other significance of the number 10 is the letter Yud. Yud is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It consists of a single component, and therefore Yud is a symbol of humility, of anivus, of humbleness. And this 
this bracha is telling us is an essential component for national unity. Just like at Har Sinai, the only reason that we were able to receive the Torah, that we camped there, the Torah tells us, opposite the mountain. And of course, the rabbis, Rashi asked, why is Vayichan written in the singular? It should say Vayichanu, right? There were lots of people there. 600,000 men, 3 million men, women, and children about to receive the Torah. And Rashi says, it, it says it in the singular because we were Ishechad Belevechad. We were like one person with one heart. And this in itself was considered an incredible miracle because two Jews, three opinions. It's not something new. We've been like that from the beginning of time. We're called Am Kishe Oref. We're a stubborn, stiff-necked people. That's how we got through this long, long story of ours, right? It works to our benefit. It can work to our detriment. Don't tell me what to do, God, right? We are stubborn. So when we accepted the Torah, that was nothing less than miraculous. If it only had been God talking to us and us hearing him clearly, that the Jewish people as a whole in unity accepted the Torah the way that we did. And the idea is that arrogance leads to divisive quarrels, which tear the nation apart and make us unready for Geula. Right? We know that um, the second Beit HaMikdash was destroyed because of Sinachinam, and every generation is supposed to see themselves as having destroyed the generation, destroyed the temple, if it hasn't been rebuilt in our day. It means that we haven't fixed the problem. We haven't fixed the problem of Machloket, of Sina, etc. And we need to be the Yachad, as we'll see the word Yachad appears in this bracha. Okay? The 10th bracha, as I said, also alludes to the idea that the Shekhinah rests only on a quorum of 10 men, a minion. Anything less than 10 is considered a fragment. 10 is a complete unit. And the end of this bracha, Baruch Hashem Yisrael, Blessed are you, God, who gathers in the dispersed of his people Israel. We're told that this was said by the angels. The Medrash tells us, when Yaakov, Yaakov was reunited with Yosef in Egypt. Now, why did they say it then? Again, alluding to the concept of ten. Only nine brothers participated in the sale of Yosef. Ruvain and Binyamin were, were not there. Remember, Ruvain left and he was hoping to come back and take Yosef out of the pit and bring him back to his father. But while he was gone, they sold him to the Ishmaelim and Binyamin, of course, was at home. So the idea is, is that when Yaakov was reunited with the, uh, uh, with, uh, sorry, when Yosef was reunited with the nine brothers who sold him, there was a shlemu, a, a, a unity again, that had, you know, there were, there had been divisiveness for the last 22 years. Okay. Um, the bracha has 20 words in it. And these 20 words in this bracha allude to the 20 generations from the beginning of the world until Avraham, until Avraham came into the world and taught the world about monotheism about the one god 
and began to uh, gather um, disciples. He and Sarah says that he was Megayer the men and women, and Sarah was Megayeret the women. And they gathered these people who professed belief in the one God in a world that was uh, rife with worship of idols, killing of children for the sacrifices of idols, pagan rituals, all kinds of bestiality and primitive type of thinking. And Abraham and Sarah came in the world to teach the world about the values, the ethics of Judaism. As we know, they say that Abraham knew the entire Torah, as did all the Avot and Imahot before the Torah was given through Ruach HaKodesh, right? Avram was eating matzah on Pesach, even before we went down to Egypt. Okay, that's another class. But suffice it to say, they knew the entire Torah before the Torah was given. And they were teaching it. Okay. How does this bracha differ from that bracha that we did earlier? The fourth bracha was it? Re'eva anyenu v'riva rivenu, where we ask Hashem to bring ge'ula. So one way that it differs is that there we're asking for our personal redemption. Remember, we said that right after we get forgiven, we ask Hashem, you know, please remove all of the obstacles in our personal way, whether it's um, anxiety, depression, difficult people in our lives, help us to be redeemed from our own uh, trials, daily trials, our daily tribulations. And there's no mention in that bracha of the Jewish people being gathered together to begin the process of redemption in a national way, okay? Also, it says another difference between the two brachas is we say because of the wickedness of the nations who persecute us and create difficulties in our lives. Here we're saying that we want redemption because we merit it, not because of how horrible the world around is to us and therefore save us from our enemies, but rather we bring ourselves to such an elevated and evolved state that God, we're ready to come back. We're ready to reunite with our mission, with the land and everything that goes with it. We're behaving like your people, Israel, like Hashem's people. Okay. This bracha, by the way, of Kibbutz Galiot and the Shemona Esrei in general, which we said at the very beginning of our series, was actually written in a time when there were over 3 million Jews who lived in Eretz Yisrael. Okay, so there were already, most of the Jews were living there. We had the, te we, we had the temple even. But we did not have Geula because there were all kinds of other problems. As we know, Sinas Chinam, the first temple was destroyed because of the three cardinal sins, murder, idolatry, and adultery. The second temple was destroyed because people hated each other, whatever that meant. They were very pious. They were doing a lot of learning of Torah and a lot of mitzvot, but they just didn't like each other. Okay, the achdus was not there. And we know that achdus is more important to Hashem than anything else. That's why, right? When the Migdal Bavel, when the Tower of Babel was being built, God did not destroy the people, right? He destroyed the world during the flood because they were rotten to each other. 
But when they were building the Tower of Babel, they were very unified, even though they were building the tower against Hashem. And God doesn't destroy them after that. He just disperses them so that they can't be together in this terrible uh, mission. Because the Torah teaches us, if there's achdut, if people are together, even if they're against God, it's still uh, worth more to him than people who are doing his will and hating one another. Okay, so that's just a quick lesson on that. So why was it that we said, because yes, because even though they lived in the land and they had the temple, it was destroyed because they weren't united. And so being united is the most important thing. As a matter of fact, in the Gemara and Tainus, which is one of the last Gemaras, or perhaps the last one in, in all of the Gemaras, or at least in the Gemara of Tainus for sure, it says that in the future, there'll be a dance. There'll be a circle of tzaddikim, right? Who will dance in a circle. And it's a, it's a metaphor and an expression of the unity that there will be among Jews when the Geula begins. And the picture of those tzaddikim is that every single one will look different, right? You'll have Ravavadya Yosef, the Sephardi Chacham, You'll have, you know, the square Rebbe, whatever, with a big strimal on his head. You'll have the leader of the Mizrahi. You'll have, you know, with a big kippah struga on his head. You'll have every type of gadol from every difference of the shivim panim the Torah, of the 70 faces of the Torah, right? And they'll be standing and they'll be dancing in a circle and the metaphor the symbol of the circle is that each one as they're moving around the circle will be in the other one's place they'll be able to see torah from that viewpoint and say aha this is also true this is also a valid way of reaching hashem and in the middle of the circle is the shechina is hashem and the idea, too, is that as they're moving into each other's place around the circle, they see that each one of them is equidistant from the center. No one is closer and no one is further away. But that each path, as long as it's Alpi Torah, Alpi Halacha, Alpi Ratzon Hashem, was valid and all of the machloket. You know, like my husband always says, you know, we agree on 99.9%. You know, we agree. We all keep Shabbat. We're supposed to keep kosher. We're supposed to be kind to the stranger. We, it's the point one that we'll argue to the death on, you know, because we're Jews. We're Amksheoref. We'll kill each other over that point one. And what a chaval to get lost in the trees. Or to get lost, what is it? Don't get, to not be able to see the, the trees. The, trees. the what? The forest the through forest the trees. trees, exactly. The forest through the trees. Okay, so let's look at the actual bracha. So the bracha says, shofar gadol Okay, there's really three parts. And we're going to look at these three parts, these three stages of redemption, which we, our generation, are embarking on. We're living in this time. I remember as a kid, there was nothing that made me more heady or passionate about my Judaism is when my father would expound on, 
you know, do you know what, what it means to live in this generation? Do you understand that for thousands of years, the Jews dreamed and prayed to have the land of Israel? Do you understand what it means to be living in a time where it exists, where it's there, where you can go there? But the question I always had was then why aren't we? Why, aren't, why isn't everybody running there? Thousands of years we wanted this. And then I came up with the idea that, you know what? Even if it was in Buffalo, and I lived in St. Catharines, it wasn't the Middle East, because let's face it, the Middle East is a weird place to want to move to if you're Ashkenazi living in Toronto. It's just not our culture. I mean, for the, the Jews that are coming from Arabic lands, it's not such a big stretch, okay? But if Israel was Buffalo, it would be a lot simpler to wrap our minds around it, you know, or, or whatever, New Jersey, you know? It's like, okay, that's not so weird. You know, I'm not going through to some weird culture and eating different food and all the rest of it. So I used to, I, I decided that even if Israel was in Buffalo, we would have a million excuses why we're not going, you know? And the truth is, as I remember when I was a bit of a wandering Jew, I spent some time in Greece and I actually met a whole bunch of Greek Jews. I was hanging out with all these young Greek Jews, this very wealthy Greek girl whose father owned hotels. I was meeting um, Greek shipping magnets because I was looking for a job as an au pair. And some of the places I interviewed were with these, you know, cigar smoking Jewish Greek shipping magnets. And we'd start talking, you know, they, they'd find out I'm Jewish. And of course, we talk about Israel. They tell me how they went to Israel to fight in the army whenever there's a war. And I would say, well, what are you doing living here? It's an hour away. It's Buffalo. You know, <laughs> why aren't you there? And they had a million reasons. And I remember a girl my age, very wealthy. I said, why do you live here? And she said, I want to live there. I go to summer camp every summer, Jewish summer camp, where they tell us to go live there, just like the camps I went to. She said, but my parents won't let me. They say it's dangerous there. They don't want me to be there. I'm much safer in Greece. So you can live an hour away. It proved my point. You could get on a boat and be there. You know, you can get on a plane and from Greece and be there in maybe 20 minutes. And they're still, they still weren't going. And that's the interesting thing about how here after thousands of years we have it. You think we would have been running there, all of us, but we have to stay here and send money. Of course, I don't think they need our money anymore. So what are we? What are we waiting for? Anyway, okay. So shofar gadol sound the great shofar for our freedom. raise the banner to gather our exiles. And gather us together from the four corners of the earth. Baruch atah Hashem, you Hashem who, are the, who is the source of all blessing. Mekabetz nidche amo Yisrael, who gathers in the dispersed of his people Israel. Okay, so let's go through this bracha quickly, okay? So that it has more meaning to you, more kavana when you're saying it. Sound, tekiah, from the word tekiah, the shofar gadol for our freedom. We know, we know we have a tradition that when the Mashiach comes, that when it's time for us to go back, 
there's going to be a chauffeur blown that is so loud, the entire world will hear it. The same way that the chauffeur that blew at Harsinai, they said that when that chauffeur was blowing, instead of getting quieter, like it would when a human being blows a horn, it just kept getting louder and louder and louder. Obviously representing that this is no regular horn blower. This is a horn that is being blown by the divine, right? By the by only one who could blow a horn and it can get louder and louder. And of course we say the entire world stood still, okay? What is this horn that's going to be blown before Mashiach? So we know the ram that was taken instead of Yitzchak at the Akedah had two, two horns, right? He didn't just have one horn. The first horn, the left horn was used at Harsinai. That was the horn that God blew on, so to speak, metaphorically, to give the Torah to the Jewish people, to give us our mission, our marching orders, our raison d'etre. Okay, and the second, the great shofar is going to be the right shofar, the right horn of the ram that will be blown at the time of Mashiach. And of course, this sound will recall Avraham's desire to do God's will unquestioningly, right? That is the 10th trial, 10th bracha that we're saying. The most difficult trial for Avraham was God telling him to bring your son, your only son, the one that you love, and to give him as an offering to me. Of course, going against everything that Avraham understood about God. God doesn't want human sacrifice. But God, Avraham, the first Jew, two Jews, three opinions, you know, follows God unquestioningly, ready to sacrifice his son. So this alludes to the idea that the Jews will be ready to return en masse when we understand that that is our reason to be, to follow God and to do his will. The shofar, of course, always makes us tremble. The shaper from the word shofar means to correct yourself, to improve yourself, to free yourself from the Yetzir Hara, from the Malach Hamabes, right? Not necessarily death physically, but spiritual death, being unconnected, being disconnected from your source, from your reason in this world, from your mission, from your soul's life force. The chauffeur blast signifies that the ingathering of the exiles is a result of divine intervention, says the Mukacha Rebbe, and nothing else. It's not because of Trump, it's not because of who's in, in, in uh, the presidency. It's not because of politics or the machinations of men. It's merely because Hashem says it's time. And when Hashem decides that, it will be, it will be miraculous. The son nace, the word nace in this bracha, raise the banner, but it also means miraculous. That it will be miraculous when we come back from the four corners of the earth. As it says, the lost ones will come from the land of Ashur and the scattered ones from the land of Mitzrayim and they will worship Hashem on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. This is from Yeshayahu, from Isaiah. 
Now, this is so interesting, and, and I love this. I think this is from Rav Cook. He says, what does it mean they'll come back from the land of Mitzrayim? So Mitzrayim is just a code word for all of the lands where they are oppressed. In the middle of the word Mitzrayim, we have the word Tsar. Tsar means oppression. He says, the first Jews that will come back to Israel will be from the lands of Mitzrayim, the lands where they're oppressed, where they're tortured, where they're tormented, where there's no freedom, where they're, where they're not allowed to practice as Jews. The minute they get a chance to leave, the minute they get a chance to run away, they're running and they're going to Israel. Sounds like Quebec. Sounds like today, exactly. Actually, I just well, Googled that 2019 was the most Jews that left to Israel in this last decade. How many? 300,000? Write it. 300,000 Jews. Anyway, I'll get to it. But anyway... Then it says they're going to come from the land of Ashur. What does that mean? Well, in English, they translate it as Assyria. But Rav Cook says Ashur is, a, is a, the same word as Osher, the lands of money, North America, the lands of fortune. They'll be the last ones to come because no one's kicking them out. They're not running for their lives. They will be the last of all the people to come back. And also, this, this is the same land of fortune and contentment where the Jews are the most lost and the most assimilated. As my father used to say around the Shabbos table, it's not hate that kills the Jews. It's love that kills the Jews. When they hate us, we know who we are. We remember who we are. We try to be like them. We want to be like them. And they come along and give us a big kick. And they say, no, sorry. We don't need any more goyim in the world. We have enough goyim. We want you to be Jews. You know, you're supposed to be driving this boat. Don't try to get in the back seat with us. We need you to be driving the boat. Maybe they don't know that that's why they want to kill us when we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing or when we're trying to be more like them than they are more German than German, more Spanish than Spanish, more Greek than Greek. But God built into the collective unconscious of the non-Jewish mind that when you want to be me, I will make sure that you get the message loud and clear that I won't allow you to be me. And so it's hate that keeps us apart. It's hate that reminds us of our mission. And it's in the countries where they love us where we disappear, where we marry them, we drink l'chaim with them, and we forget who we are. And love, my father always used to tell us, is much more dangerous. More Jews have left Judaism, have died Jewishly from assimilation throughout Jewish history than from persecution. Right? Not by choice, just by Flip sliding away as the song goes, going gently into that good night out of love. So, so sorry, just to end that, Rav Cook says the greatest miracle will be when the Jews from the land of Ashur 
come back to Israel. That will be the biggest miracle, not the ones from the lands of, of Mitzrayim. Okay. Now, there's two types of Jews that are in exile. The same way there's two steps to redemption. So the Meshachachma says there, the first type of Jew are the chauffeur blast is going to be enough to arouse them. And they're going to come back immediately. So you can imagine the chauffeur is blowing and these Jews will leave immediately. Those are Jews who never really felt at home wherever they were. They never really felt at home in Futzlaaretz. And so even the faint sound of a shofar is going to be enough for them. You know, growing up in a small town in St. Catharines, I always felt different. I never felt at home. When I would go to Israel, it was, I didn't even know why I felt so at home. When I would go to camp in the summer and be with Jewish kids, I would mourn for three months afterwards having to come back to St. Catharines because there was a certain comfort level, a certain uh, ability to breathe when you were with Jewish people let alone, alone with them in their land. And I saw that, you know, even my husband who grew up in a shtetl in Toronto, you know, he didn't have those same feelings. Because when you grow up in a big city or you grow up with Jews all around you, you think you've already arrived. You think you've already, you're already where you're supposed to be because there's a certain comfort level. You know, you got bagels around the corner, you got the pizza shop, you got everything you need, you never have to think about it. You've never been stranded anywhere where you, you know, and, and so you don't have that same kind of sensitivity about what it is to be with Jews. And very often I have an Israeli girlfriend, she's on the call right now. She's actually in my house in the basement or somewhere in the house. You know, she's becoming, hi, hi Ravit, say hi to everybody. <laughs> She's but she said I could never become in Israel. Never. I needed to leave Israel to be a foreigner, to realize how strange I feel, to be able to see what Israel is. Otherwise, it's like it's too close. I can't see it. I don't have any perspective. So for some people, they have to leave Israel in order to be able to come back and understand what it is. I mean, there's so much more to say about all of this, but it's getting late and I'd like to try and finish this bracha with all of you. Okay, the second type of Jew, he says, are not gonna be aroused by the shofar even because they're so comfortable. They're building an extension on their house. They're putting in a new pool. They're not, in the, they're not interested in leaving. And he says the only thing that's going to influence them to return is a powerful visual impact. And he says these are the majority of Jews. They're comfortable in exile. They call it home. They dread the privations that they associate with the land of Israel. Prosperity has dulled their sense, senses. And um, where is it? Isaiah says, um, Yeshayahu. Okay, we're just going to leave that. Anyway, he talks about the second type of people. Okay, the sanes lekabets. What is nace? We said nace is a miracle, but it also means a banner. That, um, 
We're asking God to raise the banner to gather our exiles. So he's raising it for us, but it's also for the entire world because when the world sees the Jewish people returning to their homeland, it will, we will inspire other nations. But more than that, we'll inspire them by our return to Torah. We need our return to Torah is what inspires the non-Jews. They respect Jews who keep their religion. They respect Jews who have standards. By our return to Torah, to our people and to our land. My husband was saying just before Shabbat, he went to the liquor store to get something. And he said, he just couldn't believe it. Like, okay, in New York, this is normal that non-Jews work with Jews and they're, they say good Shabbos to you and they say Shabbat Shalom. I mean, when you live there, it's like, I can't remember who, who that... Uh, who that comedian was it said in new york even the goyim are jews but in mississippi you know the jews are goyim you know like you know new york's so jewish that that they're culturally very but he said it was so weird he was at lawrence plaza and like first the scottish guy at the checkout counter at the lcbo said to him good shabbos i mean not even shabbat shalom i said good shabbos right then he said he's walking in the plaza and some tall you know, handsome black guys coming, to, you know, trying to walk away from him because of the social distancing. And then all of a sudden he turns to him and says, good Shabbos, okay, not Jewish. And anyway, he had like a whole bunch of Shabbat Shalom's and from all these people. So the idea is, is that as we become, we, we're visibly noticed, they visibly know we're Jewish because of our dress, because of the way we keep the Torah, it will be a, a banner for all the nations. And the ingathering will pave the way for the day when the world will be filled with the knowledge of Hashem as the waters cover the sea. Okay, the Kapsenu Yachad, Me'arba Konfosa Aretz, and we'll come back together from the four corners of the earth. So we'll be together, Yachad. As we said, this is a prerequisite. We have to be Yachad in order to make the Geula happen. Perhaps the coronavirus is making the whole world be yachad. Perhaps the coronavirus is the beginning of our redemption going further in that the Jewish people hopefully will recognize the enmity that we still have between each other, right? Talking about communities, they're not keeping it properly. They're making a chilol Hashem. You know, if I was there, I wouldn't do it that way. And judging others and hating other different groups for the way that they are behaving over corona, even this. We have to be so careful. We have to be so careful. And maybe it's bringing out in us the work that we still need to do in not loving each other enough, not giving each other's benefits of the doubt, judging others favorably, seeing the good in others, giving people, judging people betzedek the way we would want to be judged. We'd have a hundred reasons for why I didn't wear a mask or I went there or I did this. We'd have a hundred reasons for ourselves, but we can't find one for anybody else because that's, that's, that's the work. Okay, so a beautiful image by Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz. He asked the question, how do six people share one talus? How do six people get under one talus? So he says it's impossible when six people get under one talus, everybody's pulling the talus to cover themselves and they can't. But he said the way that six people can share a talus <clears throat> is, is, is if everybody's trying to cover the head of the person 
beside them. Everyone's pushing the talus to cover the head of the person beside them. That's how you can fit one talus over six people, right? But if everyone's grabbing, right, the covers, grabbing the sleeping bag, then it goes over nobody. So that's the beautiful image that Rav Chaim Shmulevitz gave us about what Yachtas looks like. The miracle will be that all of us live together with so many customs, so many languages, so many mentalities that would normally conflict. Our return to the Holy Land will be a nace. It will be a, a miracle greater than the miracle of us leaving Egypt. Do you know that when Mashiach comes and we have Geula, we will no longer celebrate Pesach? Now I know that all the women are going, yay, no more cleaning. <laughs> you know, we won't celebrate Pesach. Why? Because it says the miracles that happened during Pesach, during our leaving Israel, during the Makos and everything God did to us will pale in comparison to the miracles that we will witness with the beginning and the flowering of the redemption, with, with the gathering of the exiles of every Jew, God says, I will take each person one by one back to the land. Okay. I think we're going to have to stop here. I hate to do that, but okay. Um, or maybe I'll just cut it short. And what's going to unify us? This is very important. Not our culture, not our mentalities, not our languages. What will unify us is our Torah. Our belief, common belief that Torah is Eitz Chayim He. Do you know that when Israel began and the Jews started to return, they would compare their Torahs. The Jews of Yemen would bring their Torah scroll. The Jews from Poland would bring their Torah scroll. The Jews from Shanghai would bring their Torah scroll. And they opened up the Torah scrolls to see after thousands of years of being apart, sometimes thinking they're the only community that still exists, because the, there was no social media. There was, you know, I once met a girl who was an Anusin. She came to in 1984. She came and spoke to us. She told us her story that she had no idea that there were any other Jews alive in the world except for her family who were still living like Murano Jews in Spain. They were still going into a cave in their house to light candles. They had all these crazy rituals that were connected to Spain. And when they brought her to Israel, she said, and, and I never forgot this, she said, her mother and her and her brother were put in a hotel in the center of Jerusalem. She said they stayed up the whole night with their, the whole day and night with their noses pressed against the window of the hotel, watching Jews walking on the street with kippahs on their heads in total fear and wonderment. Number one, that there's Jews that are alive and flourishing other than them who, who were hiding for generations. And that it was safe to go out and be a Jew on the street. And I'm telling you, I was 24. She was a 24-year-old girl living in our time. And she thought they were the last Jews left on the planet. I, I, I said, like, didn't you listen to the news? Like, you know, like, 
whatever. Anyway, the point is, is that we came back from all these countries, we opened up our Torahs and we compared them. And the only letters that were different after 2000 years in our Torahs were letters that sounded the same, the Aleph and the Hey. There would be a mistake sometimes that an Aleph would be a Hey or a Hey would be an Aleph. But for 2000 years in every shul all over the world, when the guy gets up there and he makes a mistake reading and everybody yells at him, ah! and he has to repeat it, repeat it again and repeat it again, because that's how we guarded our Torah. And they did that in every single community. And when the Jews came back, it was nothing less than miraculous that our Torahs were identical, except for the Alice and the Hayes. Okay, let's just finish quickly. Do you mind if we just finish? For those of you who can stay on, because I really like to do one bracha uh, a class. Okay, so bring us back from the four corners and gather us together from the four corners. So God found no land more suitable for the Jewish people than Eretz Yisrael, and no people more suitable for the land than the Jewish people. And we're called Amo Yisrael, Mechabetz Miche Amo Yisrael, his people Israel. We're a nation, like I said, not because of our geographic homeland. It's not because of nationalistic factors, right? Because we all sing the same national anthem. It's not because we eat bagels. There was a guy recently who wrote, uh, not a secular uh, Israeli Jew, who wrote an art, a book, I think, called God is in the Crowd. And he uh, quoted a study. And he basically says this, I wish I had it, I could read it to you verbatim, but I remember it because I once gave a speech with it. He said, bagels and cream cheese Judaism is over. Victimhood Judaism is done. I'm Jewish because they tried to kill us. Okay? He said, the only Judaism that will survive is Judaism with meaning is Torah-based Judaism. Otherwise, he says, all the other types are extinct. And Jews who try to keep their Jewishness going through victimhood, through nationalism, through the food that we eat, through the jokes that we tell, you know, the Jewish jokes, that's done because the younger generation is not interested in it. Give me the real thing or I don't want any of it. I don't need it. What do I need it for? And this is what he says very, very clearly. But the idea here of Amo Yisrael is the idea again, back to the beginning, that first we have to unite as Hashem's people under the banner of Torah, and then Hashem will bring us back to the place that's best suited for us. The Gedole Yisrael all agree, all of the rabbis of all the Sadiqim in the circle agree that we're now in the last stages before Mashiach. We're in this place called Ikvese de Mashiach. We're in the footsteps of Mashiach. Rav Shem Pinkas wants to describe it as somebody who Chas is in the hospital and he's lying in his hospital bed and he hears footsteps coming down the hall. And every time he hears footsteps, he sort of gets excited and arouses himself because he thinks, you know, the doctor's coming to see me. The doctor's coming to see me, right? But then the footsteps pass by his room. But he says that's how we should be 
We're living in that time period that the footsteps of Mashiach are so close. And we should be like that patient who's in the hospital room who's saying, oh, the doctor's coming. He's coming to my room. I hear his footsteps coming down the hall. That's how he describes it. He says, we're living in a time when the Jews have been returning after 2,000 years of prayer, a time of miracles. The state of Israel was a miracle. The fall of the Iron Curtain, the mass Russian exodus, the Ethiopian Aliyah. Before the ultimate Geula, the ingathering of the exiles is the next stage of redemption. First, everybody has to come back. It's a dry run now. It's a sample test to see how we're going to be when the real thing happens. As I said, they said 2019 was Israel's best year of the decade. For Aliyah, they had 34,000 immigrants, many from Russia still, South Africa. A lot, a lot, you know, a lot of French Jews left when there was a lot of anti-Semitism. Many of them still remain there. And the Aliyah stopped there. When we, when we behave ourselves, we're called Amo Yisrael, my nation. When we sin, we're actually called Moshe's nation. In other words, God distances himself from us. He says, not mine. I don't recognize those people. I don't recognize that kid. He's not from my family, right? So when, we're, when we behave ourselves and we act in consonance with God's Torah, we're called Amo Yisrael, his people Israel. Who are these castaways, the Nidche Yisrael? It says that the biggest miracle will be that the Jewish people will come back, the Jews who didn't even know they were Jewish, the Jews who were so estranged from their people. The Vilna Gaon says it refers to the 10 tribes. We'll find them. They'll come back, whether they're the Eskimos or the Indians or the Incas or whatever people say, you know, these people who do these strange Jewish rituals. They'll come back. The lost that are lost, it says half are lost in the dark mountains and half are lost beyond the Sambation River. Another expression in this, in this, in this tefillah refers to Binyamin and Yehuda, who all the Jews of the world right now are descended from. They're scattered among the four corners of the earth, earth. And we're asking Hashem to bring back all of these different groups of Jews together. The same way Yaakov was united with all his sons, so too the redemption will only take place after all the Jews return to their father in heaven and they gather together spiritually as one. So another idea is that there's three stages in this prayer and these three stages of redemption mirror the redemption from Egypt. Number one, first we'll gain freedom in the countries that we're living in, in exile. Secondly, we'll gather together in a central location the way they did at Harsinai. And thirdly, en masse, we'll go back to the land as a united force. So the idea, just to the end of this class, thank you for listening, is our differences are superficial. We agree on so much. We've shared the same history, all of us, even the most secular and the most unknowledgeable and illiterate Jew. If you're a Jew, it means that you shared the same history as your ancestors. I used to teach Hebrew school in Manhattan Beach in New York. 
And I had all these Russian kids, very affluent Russian kids in a very affluent part of Brooklyn. And I used to say to them, you know, if you're Jewish today and you know you're a Jew, it's only because you have Bubbies and Zadies and ancestors going all the way back that made really hard choices. You know, when they were being told convert or die, they either converted and pretended or they ran away or they risked their lives. They survived the Holocaust, perhaps. They survived the Gulag. They survived. And the only reason that you can call yourself a Jew today is because of all the sacrifices and all the hard choices they made. And yet it's so sad because the, see, these same kids living in New York in the you know, 21st century were walking away from their Jew Jewishness because it was just so easy. Because in a, in a world that we live in today where kosher food is available everywhere, where it's so easy to be a Jew, where they love us so much and they make it so easy, I saw my father's words coming true. That's when we just slip away. And it's only the very few that survive prosperity, that survive the love, that survive the bear hug. That's really the kiss of death. Like that, you know, the meeting of Esav and Yaakov. Did he kiss him or did he bite him? Right? Esav, my brother. That's where we get it from. Esav, he's Esav, my brother. He's Esav who hates me. He's my brother who loves me. Which one is worse? I think I prefer the ace of you travel on alone. I'll, I'll make my own way. Right? That's what Yaakov understood. I don't want to be too close to you. I'll forget who I am. So the idea, again, is if we survive this exile and we remain intact as Jews, and even those of us who don't, God's going to bring back every single one. He's going to arouse people who didn't even know they were Jewish. And it, it, we, need, uh, we need unity for this to happen. So the Nidche are those who are cast away and abandoned. And even the most estranged Jew in the most remote corner of the globe will be summoned homeward, like a homing pigeon who knows his way back. Even those who don't know they are Jewish, will stir. And just to end with one story, we lived in Israel during the Gulf War. Uh, we had three little kids that were born there at that time. One of them was a baby and they had to go into that plastic thing where you couldn't, you put them into this plastic tent and you had to stick your hands in through these gloves to be able to even hold them. And they gave you a bottle for that plastic thing. Anyway, the point is, is people were in their uh, header of tombs. And of course, everybody was scared and Saddam Hussein was in power. And, you know, it was Purim time, I remember. And anyway, the point is, is we, one of those weeks of, of the Gulf War, we had a, a Shabbos guest. And this was like a 20 year old guy from the States and he had just made Aliyah. And we were in shock. Now you make Aliyah? You make Aliyah during the Gulf War? So he told us that even in, in the airport, when he came in, all of the Israelis that worked in the airport were shocked. They said, what? You're coming to Israel? They said, we've been so busy with people running away from Israel. All the Americans, they're all leaving right? During the Gulf War. First of all, their parents were all saying, come on, get out of there right away, right? 
And he said, and nobody's coming, even the Russian Aliyah, it stopped completely, nobody's coming. And you're coming from America? You know, this strong, handsome 20 year old boy who was not from, who, who just discovered his Judaism recently. And, and you know, this It's interesting that when you make Aliyah to Israel, your first taxi ride in Israel is free from the airport and you can ask the taxi to take you anywhere you want. Okay, that's one of the little perks of making Aliyah. I don't know if it's still true, but that's what he told us. And he said, take me to the old city. That's where he went. And I guess he was at the Kotel and they sent him to our house for Shabbat. And that's how we met him. And he said, listen, if I would wait for a good time to make Aliyah, I would never make Aliyah because there's always something going on in this country. There's always a reason not to come. And, you know, obviously he was young and unfettered. He had no family. He could do it. But even still, he said they were so shocked in the airport that everybody was going that way and he was going this way. And he said, because the truth is, is there's always a million excuses and there's always a million good reasons. But ultimately, you just have to close your eyes and jump and hope that, you know, God willing, you land in God's loving arms. But before all that, we have to be united. And that's the prerequisite to being able to have the whole package. So I wish us all, God willing, that our journey should take us to Eretz Yisrael together with all the Jewish people, with all the Nidche Yisrael, with all the Jews who don't even know that they're Jewish. And we should be able to, in our generation to be merit, to merit, to really live, to be a light onto the nations, to see a world where, as Rabbi Manus Friedman said, that when we see what the world can be, we'll look back at our Jewish history and we will say, it was all worth it. Can you imagine us saying it was all worth it? That's how incredible it will be. Thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful week. I'm doing a second class on prayer um, on Tuesday morning. If you want to join, I'll try to, well, it'll be on the Village Shul website. It was hard for people to get in last week. I'm trying to figure that out. Probably I'm going to do the Shema prayer or the morning blessings. It's supposed to be a beginner's class. So I think I'll just take people through a little bit of a sitter. And of course, Wednesday, we continue with our anger management. Time is the Tuesday class? The Tuesday class is at 10, 10 to 11. It's through Project Inspire. And I will send you the link and hopefully how to get in. Okay, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Tavora. Thank you.